The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. of Luke in the New Testament as a church body <clears throat> and we started at chapter one and we're going all the way through and it has 24 chapters and it focuses on the ministry of Jesus Christ it does talk about his birth which was a supernatural birth but the focus is on the reason Jesus came picking up when he turned 30 years old excuse me <clears throat> and uh, so it focuses on the ministry of Jesus Christ it's about three and a half years Jesus as the Messiah, uh, the promised one from the Old Testament, the coming Messiah. And so that's what Luke is writing about and unfolds that. And we're about halfway through the book, we're up chapter 13. Uh, we've covered his birth. We covered when he was 12 years old, one incident there. And then we've actually covered uh, a majority of his three-year ministry already. And so now we are actually in the, towards the end of his ministry, which is probably the last six months of his ministry, if we think his ministry was about three and a half years we're looking at the last six months. He was uh, born in Bethlehem down south, but he was raised in Nazareth up north in Galilee. So he grew up in Nazareth, up in north of Israel. And so at age 30, that's where his ministry was concentrated primarily. Uh, he was ministering to those whom he grew up with there in Nazareth. And all of Galilee for three years as he went around preaching the kingdom of God, and also proclaiming that he was the Messiah, the promised Messiah and the Son of God. And occasionally, he would go down south to the temple at least three times a year, or uh, three times over the course of those three years at feast times. So he had a little bit of ministry down in Jerusalem and Judea, way down in the south, but primarily his ministry was concentrated in the north in Galilee to those who pretty much knew who he was as he was proclaiming himself as Messiah. Now we've transitioned. He's told his disciples, okay, we've exhausted this area. We've preached everywhere here in Galilee and all the towns. It, again, probably over a two-year period, and now we're going to move on. So uh, Jesus with his 12 apostles, a small group of ladies who were committed to him, ministering to him, following along with him, and then probably maybe the 70 elders or the 70 other disciples that he had, uh, that he trained along the way or with him. And so he's got this entourage, and he's moving uh, from the north of Galilee, and he's going to go down to Jerusalem. And he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem because I'm going to die there. And that was a surprise and a horrific shock to his disciples. They didn't know he was going to die. They didn't want him to die. And yet the irony is Jesus was born to die. That's why he came. They don't get it yet. So he still has to teach them. So he's got six months. They leave Nazareth, and then they go across the Jordan River to the east into this region called Perea. And it's just a thin, narrow piece of land on the east side of the Jordan River. That's where he is in Luke 13 through about Luke 19. That's where we are. So he's, he's on the move. He's stopping here and there and having these spontaneous sermons that, he, that he's giving, probably open-air sermons. Some of these crowds that are attracting are massive with tens of thousands of people. We already saw one of those. And then most recently he was another. We think it's a crowd, probably not as big, but he's teaching. And people are asking him questions publicly. People are intrigued. People are fascinated. People are confused. These audiences are all Jewish, by the way. And as Jesus keeps Preaching is the master preacher and the rabbi from heaven. 
He's a Jew, and he's preaching to the Jews, saying, I have come in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And for the most part, they don't get it. They are confused. They don't understand Jesus' mission or who he is. They do know he does miracles. That's cool. He gives out free food occasionally, like that. But he has a hard message. You're a sinner. You all are. You need to repent of your sin. Cry out to God. Ask for forgiveness. Otherwise, you can't have a relationship with God, with Yahweh, with the Creator. And God has given me, Jesus, Son of God, as the Messiah and the Savior and the solution to the sin problem. You can't save yourself. Good deeds don't save you. Doing the Mosaic Law doesn't save you. Obeying the Ten Commandments doesn't save you. Going to synagogue doesn't save you. Going to the temple doesn't save you. Sacrificing lambs doesn't save you. It's recognizing that you're a sinner and that you desperately need the grace and the forgiveness of Yahweh God and that is through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's the message that Jesus is proclaiming and they don't like it. He's getting more and more resistance and that resistance is growing to great heights of hostility, especially from the leadership of Israel. The leadership of Israel, Israel is a theocracy. It's a religious nation. We don't really have those today. Except in a, you know, a few Islamic nations. But Israel at the time was a theocracy of God under the Mosaic Covenant. And so that's Jesus' message. They don't like it. They are prideful. They don't want to admit they're sinful. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he makes himself equal with Yahweh. And he did that because he was equal with Yahweh. He was equal with the Father. He was deity like the Father. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God-man. When Jesus was born of Mary, God came down from heaven. God didn't, he didn't have a body before he was born of Mary, but he existed and was eternal and uncreated. And had equality with the Father and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. And then he came down to the world that he created, took on a human body, was 100% God, 100% man. This is who he is. So they don't, like, they don't like his message of a call to repentance, and they don't like the fact that he's calling himself equal with Yahweh. In their mind, he's a blasphemer. In their mind, he should die. In their mind, he needs to be stoned to death or crucified. That's the leadership of Israel. That's been their plan for about three years now. That's where we are. The leadership of Israel, the Sanhedrin it was called. 70 Jewish leaders. It was like the Supreme Court. But they were primarily religious, Old Testament experts of the Mosaic Law. The Sanhedrin, made up of the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And we talked about how all through Luke that the Pharisees are the nemesis. They are the enemies of Jesus Christ. They've been nothing but hostile to him up to this point for three solid years. Behind the scenes, they're trying to stew up a, a plan to capture him, to shut him up, to kill him. That's where we are. Now he's got six months left, and Jesus knows they're after him. For the most part, he's been avoiding them, hiding from them. He's in control of his life. But he knew he was born to die. Jesus, that's why Jesus came into the world, to die. Why did you come into, Why were you born into this world? It wasn't to die. That's not your purpose. 
Jesus was the only human in the history of the world where his purpose was to be, he came to die, he was born to die. To be a sacrifice on behalf of sinners. To appease the wrath of Almighty God the Father on the cross. That was his purpose. He knows that. It's in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill that. He's not afraid of death. He knows that's his mission. He's headed towards that. He already told his disciples, I go to Jerusalem to die. To die during the feast. To die during Passover. To die in the spring. To die in the month of Nisan. To die on the 14th day in fulfillment of Scripture. That's why I came. This is six months away. They were shook up, shook up by that. They were troubled by that. And they still they didn't understand it. But Jesus is on his mission. And that is to die. And so now we end up here at Luke 13. Let's go ahead and look at it. Luke 13. Uh, this all goes together starting at verse 22 down to 35. He's teaching to some crowds. Somebody asks a question. Lord, will few people be saved? And he says, well... It depends. A few of the Jews living today who've heard me will be saved. It will only be a remnant who will be saved. For the most part, the majority of the Jews who have heard me, seen me, will reject me. And he was brokenhearted by that. And the supermajority of the leadership of Israel, the Jews, have rejected him and will reject him. Only a few will believe. So will a few be saved? Well, a few of the living Jews today will be saved, but in the big scheme of things, many people will be saved, and that's what he told them. He's talking to this Jewish crowd, and he said, well, a few of you will be saved. Most of you will end up actually resisting me, rejecting me, and you'll end up in outer darkness and hell forever, which made them angry, and yet he says, but at the same time, uh, many will be saved. They'll come from the east, west, north, north, and south. And that's the Gentiles from all over the world are going to hear the message about me all throughout history. And they will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and be saved. And they become a part of the church. So this has been fulfilled. When Jesus said, many will come, many will be saved. Meaning many Gentiles. Some Jews, but many Gentiles. And for 2,000 years, Gentiles have been coming to Jesus Christ in repentance to be saved, to become Christians. And then you keep reading the Bible, especially the book of Revelation and the prophets, and you realize, well, it's not over for the Jews, because at the end of the age, how will world history end? We know because it's in the Bible. Will world history end with a nuclear holocaust from Russia and other countries? No. Will world history end with global warming? No. World history ends with Jesus Christ returning. Revelation 19 and many, many, many other passages. God is in charge of world history. He's the creator. He's the sovereign one. He is the author of history. He has a purpose for history. And at the end of the age, when the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to soften and woo the entire nation of Israel and all Jews all over the world, gather them together. This is explicit in Scripture. And when he returns literally to earth, Israel collectively across the world and in, in their very land, they will all go back to the land and they will embrace Jesus Christ who will then be the resurrected Savior and Lord in glory when he lands on the earth in Jerusalem when he comes a second time. How does world history end? It ends with the Lord Jesus Christ, who now is exalted in heaven in a perfect, glorified, resurrected body as the God-man. When he returns in the future, he will let, he will, when he does return, he's coming visibly with the angels and with the saints, and he's returning to Israel. He's returning to Jerusalem. He's returning to the Mount of Olives. That's what he said. 
And from there, he will reign as king of kings and lord of lords for a thousand years. And the entire nation of Israel will repent and embrace him. And they will weep over him and regret what they have done throughout history for the most part. And that is reject the truth in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 11, at the end of the chapter, at that time, at the end of the age, all Israel will be saved. So that was a difficult question that somebody asked. Will only a few be saved? Well, yes and no and no. And yes. Depends on who you're talking about. Few of the Jews will be saved. Few of the Jews that were alive in Jesus' day. Many Jews will be saved, especially at the end of the age, when there's a national repentance and restoration and revival. It's going to be awesome. That's how world history ends. That is very clear in Scripture. So with that background, here's Jesus, verse 22 and following. He answers that question. Uh, Few will be saved, few Jews. Many Gentiles will be saved. Uh, The Jews didn't like that. And so in verse 31, it says, Pharisees then approached him. Pharisees, Jewish leaders. And they were the ones that thought you get right with God just by being born a Jew. All Jews go to heaven. All Jews are loved by Yahweh God. And Jesus just contradicted that. So they're mad. So they approached him when he was done teaching. Verse 31, just at that time, Pharisees approached Jesus and they said, go away. Go away from where? In Perea, that area on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, The temple in Jerusalem was on the west side of the Jordan River. Go away. Leave here. They're trying to flush him out of Perea. They're trying to flush him down south to get him in the area of Judea and especially in Jerusalem, into that jurisdiction. Because all these areas, Galilee, Nazareth, north of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi, Perea on the east, Judea and Jerusalem down in the south, these were all ruled by different lesser kings and governors. They all had different jurisdiction. Not one person had power and authority all over all of Palestine or Israel at that time. King Herod did, but he was dead. And then he divided his rule among four of his sons, and they all got a chunk. They all have different jurisdictions. And the brothers, they're fighting with one another. Hey, that's in my backyard. Hey, you crossed the line. Hey, that's my fence. Hey, that's my tree. So they didn't like each other. And where Jesus is now in the area of Perea, these, these Pharisees, they didn't have the authority to arrest Jesus or kill him. But if they could just flush him down south into Judea in the Jerusalem area, then that's where their posse was, and they could secretly trap him somehow, isolate him, arrest him, go through a mock trial, false accusations, and then execute him. That was their goal. So, but we've got to get him out of this area of Perea, because the area of Perea was ruled by Herod Antipas was his name, one of Herod the Great's sons. And he ruled in Galilee and this little piece of land in Perea. That's where, so Jesus right now in Luke 13, he is under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. Down in Judea, it's uh, Pontius Pilate and it's another different ruler down there. So that's their goal. That's why they said, hey, get out of here, go. Basically what they're saying probably is go down south. Don't go up to Galilee because Herod rules there and Herod wants to kill you. Don't stay in Perea because Herod rules here and Herod wants to kill you. Go away. Leave here. Herod wants to kill you. 
So they're trying to pass themselves off as trying to save Jesus' life and warn him. Uh, Jesus doesn't take the bait because if he thought they were face value sincere, he may have responded differently and said, oh, okay, how do you know that Herod wants to kill me? Or, oh, okay, where should I go? But he doesn't say that. Verse 32, uh, Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox. He can't even mention Herod's name. He calls him a fox. Go and tell Herod that nobody. He's not a lion. He's a fox. He's a nuisance. He's not a king. He's a tetrarch. He's a petty puppet of Rome. And yeah, I am in his jurisdiction right here. But I have the right to be here in Perea. And no, I'm not afraid of Herod. And no, Herod's not going to kill me. At his agenda, God the Father knows when I'm going to die, and I'm going to submit to the will of the Father of when I'm supposed to die. So you go and tell that fox, Herod, behold, I cast out many demons and perform cures today, basically saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm not afraid of you. I have supernatural power from God Almighty, I'm not afraid of you. I've cast out demons and Satan himself, I'm not afraid of you. That's his message to Herod Antipas. And I've got business to do today, tomorrow, and the next day. The Father has given me ministry to do, and I will do that to the full. That's basically what he's saying in verse 32. Until I reach my goal, and my goal is to die for sin. My goal is to die on Passover. My goal is to die at the exact right time, as prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. 550 years before Christ was even born, God gave a prophecy of when the Messiah was to die. Specific, verse 33, and then nevertheless, Jesus says, I must journey on today. I need to keep moving, do a ministry. So yeah, I am going to leave Perea eventually, but it's not because I'm afraid of Herod or your warning. I'm in the plan of the Father doing his will. So yeah, I will journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. But just so you know, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, Jesus wasn't afraid to die in Perea because he knew he wouldn't die in Perea. He knew that Herod couldn't kill him in Perea because that wasn't God's will. God predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would die in Jerusalem. Can you think of a Bible verse in the Old Testament that predicted that the Messiah would die in Jerusalem? I'll give you a second to think about it. A specific verse, because there are verses that says the Messiah will die. We saw that in Genesis 3.15, 4,000 years before Christ was born. That just says he's going to die and crush Satan. That doesn't say he's going to die in Jerusalem. Well, Isaiah 53, yeah, well, that explains the meaning of his death. It's an atonement, but that doesn't say where he's going to die. Well, Psalm 22, 1,000 years before with David describing, no, that's, that's just a description of the excruciating physical crucifixion. Read it carefully. It doesn't say he's going to die. That's going to happen in Jerusalem. So there's all kinds of prophecies the Messiah would die, but where does it say in the Bible that Jesus would die in Jerusalem or the vicinity? Well, I do think it's interesting that in Genesis 22, when Abraham was called by God to take his son Isaac, his only son, his only son, his only son. Three times Genesis 22 says that. 
God tells Abraham, take your only son, your only son, your only son. It's the same word used in the New Testament of Jesus in John chapter 1. The only begotten son. Genesis 22, God's telling Abraham, take your only son, your only son, your special son, your unique son, your only begotten son, the son of the covenant. That's what he meant three times. Take him where I tell you to go, Moriah, the mountain area of Moriah around Jerusalem, and there build an altar and sacrifice and kill your sons. Kill your beloved son. Kill your beloved, unique, and only son. Kill the son of the promise. Kill your son of the covenant. Well, was Isaac Abraham's only son at the time? No. He had an older son. Remember that? But he wasn't the son of promise. And that's why God says three times, your only son, your, literally the, the, your unique son, the son of the promise of the covenant. Take him to Moriah and there kill him. Where's Moriah? Well, if you look on a good Bible map, Mount Moriah is right next to Jerusalem. It's literally one of the hills in Jerusalem. I believe Genesis 22 is a prophetic type in many ways of the death of Jesus Christ as a substitute, a sacrifice. As he dies and assuages the wrath of God the Father. A substitute being provided for others. A substitute there is the ram was killed instead of the son. An innocent ram that was killed. That God provided and it happened where? In the vicinities of Jerusalem. Where would Jesus die 2,000 years later? In the vicinity of Jerusalem. So that's a prophetic type. But then you fast forward from the days of Abraham, about 1,500 years, to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and that is explicit. Seven times seven. 490 years from this specific time, the Messiah will come, he will enter the city, and he will give his life for sin and for atonement. And in the next verse, it mentions in Jerusalem. So the Old Testament predicted the Messiah must die for sin in Jerusalem. And then you go back and read this and hear it. Uh, and the Pharisees are saying, oh, you might get killed here in Perea. Jesus could have said, what he often said, you not knowing the scriptures, fools not knowing the scriptures. So he knew he had to die in Jerusalem. My goal and no prophet, and Jesus was a prophet, he was the greatest prophet of all. According to the book of Deuteronomy, he was the greatest prophet, messenger of God. And Jesus says that uh, a prophet can't perish or die out of Jerusalem because there were so many prophets that God sent to Jerusalem that the people of Jerusalem, they killed them, they slaughtered them. They murdered God's prophets. That was routine in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. We believe that Isaiah, the great prophet, was murdered by King Manasseh in Jerusalem, saw it in half. King Manasseh, who's supposed to represent God, Jerusalem, the city, the temple, the word of God. He sends him a prophet named Isaiah and he kills him in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is talking about. So that was um, last week and then bringing that up. So now we go to the next point. So in your bulletin there, I had three points I wanted to emphasize on these verses 31 to 35. The first one is the plan of his death. And as you can see, is that Jesus' death was predetermined. Predetermined. Acts 2, 22 to 23 explicitly says that his, the death of Christ was predetermined and foreordained before the foundation of the world by God. And yet those who committed it in time, they're culpable, they are guilty, they are responsible. Herod, 
Pilate, the Jews, the Roman soldiers, and every sinner that was ever born are culpable and responsible for his death. But his, his death was predetermined. So we go on to the next point here in light of this overarching thing that I have that Jesus came to die, point number two, and that is the plea over his death as his own forsaken. That's verse 34. So he just mentioned Jerusalem, so he picks up on this theme of Jerusalem. Oh, speaking of Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, he doesn't say O in the Greek text. Some of your English Bibles have O for some reason. NIV gets it right. They leave the O out. They're just going by the Greek text there. It's just Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is an idiom that you find all throughout the Bible when you repeat something, when God repeats somebody's name. Or when King David repeated the name of his son at the time of his death, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, Absalom. He said it like two or three times. Tragic. And Jesus, when he is frustrated with somebody, we saw that with Martha. Oh, Martha, Martha. He was rebuking her. There's a lot of pathos in that. Simon, Simon, you know, Peter. Jesus was frustrated. Simon, Simon. So there is a lot of uh, pathos to that, a lot of emotion. Jesus is cut to the heart here. He, he is overwhelmed with emotion. In light of his mission to come to his own, to fulfill Old Testament scripture, to come to the Jews, to come to Israel and be their savior, to be their Messiah, to be their king. And yet they continue to resist him. We don't want that man as our king. They will literally say that. And Jesus has been hearing that for three years. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And the leaders of Jerusalem were the ones that just addressed him, the Pharisees. And now he's going to give a prophecy, a prophecy and a rebuke and a historical commentary. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets. It doesn't say the city literally, but so you can scratch that out. It's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that is killing the prophets, literally. And Jerusalem literally refers to this city, Jerusalem, Salem, Salem, get this, the city of peace. The city of peace has historically, under the jurisdiction of the Jewish people, hasn't been a city of peace. It's been a city of killing the prophets. It's been a city of hostility and hatred. It's been a city of blood. It's not the holy city. It's the hostile city. It's not the beautiful city. It's the bloody city. That's why Jesus is so broken here. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and when he's referring to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel at this time. It had been since the time of King David, where he put the tabernacle there. He was the king. That's where all worship for all Jews was to happen. You needed to migrate there during the three feast days of the year, slaughtering the animals. So it was headquarters. There was one temple. Some religions have temples all over the place, all over the world. Jerusalem had one temple and only one, and it was in Jerusalem. And Jesus went to the temple as a good Jew. He was circumcised there. He went there when he was 12. He went during the feast days. He celebrated Passover there, tabernacles, and all the required feasts there. So he was an obedient Jew going to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was uh, the center of all of 
the land of Israel, the nation as a whole. It was the capital city of the entire nation. It was the religious headquarters. It was the political headquarters. That's where the Supreme Court of the Sanhedrin was. That's where the main leaders of the religion were. So it's an all-inclusive term. So Jerusalem includes the city, the capital city where the temple was, but it also is representative of the entire nation of Israel and really of all Jews living in that day. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Because if you were a Jew, you identified with Jerusalem. It's very possible in Daniel chapter 9, 550 B.C., when Daniel was a prisoner in Babylon, and it said that he prayed three, he got down and he knelt, Three times a day, probably praying towards Jerusalem. So that's what Jerusalem means. It's the city and entails all of the committed Jews. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Instead of being the beautiful city, the holy city, the city of peace, you're the one that kills the prophets. And they're about to kill the greatest prophet of all, Jesus himself. You kill the prophets, you do it with stoning, stoning to death. That was in the... Mosaic law, you, stone, you executed somebody through stoning for primarily blasphemy and apostasy. Which is ironic because God keeps sending his prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Uriah and Zechariah and several others. You can read about those in Kings and Chronicles. And God keeps sending them to Jerusalem and they keep getting murdered and stoned to death and killed with the sword by the king's of Israel, the kings and the leaders of Israel that are in Jerusalem. So they had a long history of blood on their hands. That's what Jesus is saying. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, they're the ones that are killing the prophets, killing present tense, because you're going to kill Jesus. It's not going to stop there. They're going to kill Stephen. They would love to kill the apostle Paul when he comes on the scene, kills the prophets, stones those who sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. This is just a powerful statement on Jesus' part. There's two parts to this verse, verse 34 and 35. First, there's the, the kind of rebuke, but then there's this compassion, which is Jesus. He has all the attributes of God, right? God uh, is not just a God of love, Right? God has all the God is a God of holiness, he's a God of judgment, he's a God of punishment, he's a God of wrath, but he's also a God of love and mercy and patience and sinlessness. And they all go together in perfect balance. That's the God of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not a lopsided God. Oh, God of hate in the Old Testament, God of love in the New Testament. That's what some people think. Oh, Jesus, he was all about love. No, no. He was about love, he was incarnate love and more the perfect holiness of God, and all of God's attributes. So Jesus was also about accountability and holiness and the judgment of God and warning people about it. And he was the greatest incarnation of love. He would die for sinners, the greatest act of love. And yet they go together, and you see that in this verse, in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you murderers. That's a rebuke. And in the same breath, how often I wanted to gather your children. I wanted to come to you. I don't have utter disdain for you as Jews. This is not a cold, callous attitude of vindictiveness coming from Jesus at all. This is the broken heart of a father towards their child who in a moment of sin disobeys. So as a parent, you can relate to this. You don't hate your children when they do something wrong. 
you lose your temper or you get mad or you get angry or even you're level-headed and you employ discipline, loving chastening to them because you love them. That's Jesus' attitude. Right here. You can see his heart of love. How often I want it. So he's reminding him, you know what I've been doing for three years? He's calling you to repentance and get you under my wing. And God's, God has sent me here, the Father, to protect you, the nation of Israel. God's people, his children. I want you under my wing. Just like it says in Deuteronomy 32, where God puts his, protects his people under his wing, or the Psalms, it says the same thing. That God, I, I hide myself under your wings, under your pinions, in your shadow. You are my protection. The faithful God. That's, what Jesus, that's the imagery Jesus is using. Come here to, to protect you, to watch over you. That was Jesus' mission. Jesus came to protect the Israelites, protect the Jews, to protect the Pharisees, to take in the Sadducees, to protect the scribes, to protect them from what? A lot of things. From the world, from their own sin, and from the coming wrath of God. That's the greatest thing that Jesus came to save them from, the wrath of the Father. Jesus wanted to save them from his own wrath because Jesus meets out wrath at the end of the age. And that's what he's saying. I, I, I was wooing you. I wanted you. I wanted you to gather you. As it, where it says hen, that's just bird. That's why it refers to the eagle in the Old Testament with the same imagery. And a hen that is just tenacious in guarding its chicks. Guarding her brood under her wings. And, but you would not. That's how he ends it. It's just erupt. He doesn't say you would not have it. He just says, and you would not. I'm trying to gather you, but you would not. You didn't want that. You didn't want my protection. You didn't want me. You didn't want God's plan. You didn't want his word. You didn't want his way of salvation and rescue. You want your own way. Which was the prideful way and works righteousness way. So that's the heart and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is forthright about pointing out sin and the call to repentance and warning people of future damnation for eternity if they don't repent, but at the same time and in the same breath, he's constantly calling sinners to repentance and he will accept them. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what sin you have done, you bow the knee, you soften your heart, you repent and ask for forgiveness, Jesus will forgive you. Can you imagine how horrible Herod was? Herod, in this passage, this is the same Herod who murdered John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, Jesus' best friend, the prophet who paved the way for Jesus. Jesus said of John the Baptist was the greatest man among men. The most humble of all men. The greatest prophet up to that time. This Herod, Herod Antipas, the fox, arrested him unjustly, falsely accused him, had him murdered, had his head cut off, put on a platter, and then brought as the dessert piece at his birthday meal. This Herod. Even after that grotesque, heinous, evil, wicked crime, had Herod repented on a spot, in a moment, Jesus would have said, I forgive you. I forgive you. I grant you forgiveness. If it was genuine, that's the heart of God. So he goes on in verse 35, uh, point number three there. Regarding Jesus came to die, and that's the purpose of his death. There are many purposes. We've talked about those before. But the emphasis here is on one of his purposes. He came to, he was born to die, but for a greater purpose that was 
still yet future. He didn't come only to die. He died for a purpose. To be a savior and sacrifice for sin, but it didn't stop there. He also was born and lived and died and to go back to heaven, to intercede for his church. That's the purpose. He's doing it right now. To answer your prayers, to answer my prayers, that's the purpose. And it doesn't end there because in the future, I've already referred to it, he will return again to continue his mission. So this is the purpose that Jesus is focusing on here at the end of the age, what my ultimate purpose is on behalf of the Father. It's future. It's at the end of the age. Verse 35, behold, behold, get this, pay attention. And he's talking, who's he talking to? He's not just talking to the Pharisees. It's Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's really Israel as a nation, Israel as a people, Israel collectively. That's who he's talking to. Because he says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. House is oikos, it's the Greek word, and it depends on the context of what it means. Oikos can refer to a family. It can refer to a physical structure of a building, a literal house. It can be a community of people. It can be a city. It can be a country. It's where you have your personal identity, depending upon what that association is. Oikos, house. So he says, behold, because you've uh, rejected me, the prophets of God, you are culpable. Judgment is coming. Behold, as a result, I've tried. I've tried to woo you for three and a half years. You won't have any of it. My own people has, my own nation has rejected me, so I reject you. Remember when he started his ministry at the temple, he said, he called the temple, my father's house. Now he's taking his hands off. You know what? It's not my father's house anymore. When he dies and he's crucified and the curtain in the temple is rent by God, it's over. The temple belongs to me no more. It's not God's anymore. It's yours. And it's empty. God isn't there. That's what he means by desolate, empty. Behold your house and everything about it. Your house as a Jewish nation, your house literally the temple, all the promises, it's empty. Your house, the protection of God, your house is left to you desolate, empty. It's emphatic in the Greek text. It literally says, is left to you. It is forsaken, your house. It's empty, your house. Ichabod, God isn't there anymore. Just as he abandoned the Old Testament in the days of Ezekiel, so he is abandoning all of Jewish religion upon the death and resurrection of Christ. Behold your house, Jerusalem. Behold your house, Israel. Behold your house, beloved Jews, is left to you empty. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So basically what he's saying is judgment is coming. Judgment is imminent. It starts with his Uh, Death on the cross, the temple uh, curtain is rent. God turns that temple over to them. He forsakes it. He forsakes his people. He starts the church. He begins a new program. God is reaching out to countless Gentiles through the special ministry of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Gentiles. Israel becomes hardened. Israel is partially hardened. They are partially forsaken by God. They are now under all the curses of the book of Deuteronomy 26 to chapter 30 under the Mosaic Covenant. If you obey, I will bless you. If you do not obey, I will curse you. And I will chase you out of the land, and I will scatter you to the four corners of the world. Deuteronomy 26 to 29. 1400 B.C., God said that to the Jews. And it's coming. And it's a beautiful thing. And when you go to Deuteronomy 29 and 30, that's not the end of the story. How does it end? It says, but 
I will not forget you. In light of my covenant, I will call you unto myself. I will gather you from the four corners of the earth so that you might be my people once again. Paul chimes in on that in Romans 11 where he says, and all Israel will be saved. And the entire book of Zechariah chapters 12 through 14 gives the details of what that's going to be like at the end of the age when the entire nation of Israel turns to Jesus the Messiah. At the end of the age, when he comes in glory and Jews from all over the world, literally on the earth, are crying out to him this psalm, Psalm 118, one of the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of Worship. It's called Psalm 18, and they're literally quoting it from it as they're praising Jesus at the end of the age. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is our Messiah. He is the one of Yahweh. That's the great revival coming at the end of the age. That's what he's talking about. So there's a lot of bad news for the Jews and Jerusalem and Israel here in the immediate term. But the good news and the hope in verse 35 is that little world called until. Until. That's good news. Until the end of the age. That's, that's what it's talking about. Israel will be saved. They will embrace their Messiah. That is the awesome, patient grace of God. God isn't going to forsake Israel. Let me close with this. Uh, go to Jeremiah 31 in your Old Testament there. You got um, Isaiah, Jeremiah... So they broke the, uh, so God first gave the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. That was an eternal covenant that he made it with Abraham. It was a promise God made, God initiated. It was a covenant made to Abraham. He'd make him a great nation. They would become Israel. And then all the families of the earth would be blessed. So it would actually extend all the Gentiles too. So we are actually beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant made in 2000 BC. And God, when God made that covenant with Abraham, he said it's eternal. It's an eternal covenant. It cannot be revoked. Are we, the church, under the Abrahamic covenant today? Answer, yes. We are. And then there are manifestations of that. It gets fleshed out through the Davidic covenant as well, components to it, about who the king would be. That's Jesus the Messiah. And then the new covenant flows out of the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. We are under, the church is, under the new covenant. We're experiencing that Right now, and here's when God gave the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, and this is again about 600 B.C. Uh, Israel had just basically just categorically disobeyed the Mosaic covenant. And so God has a new plan. And verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, he said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. He's going to set aside the Mosaic covenant and make a new covenant. Well, who's he making it to? Well, the church, those Gentiles, doesn't say that. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. With Israel. That's who the new covenant was made with. We benefit from it. Not like the covenant under Moses. Verse 33, it's going to be new and unique, this covenant. I will, I will make this covenant with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my law within you, so it will be internal, not external. On the heart, I will change your heart. Regeneration, being born again. I will write it, and I will be their God. You'll have a personal relationship with God, and you shall be my people. And then Ezekiel says in that new covenant, he's also going to put the spirit of God in his people, which he didn't do in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful thing. So when you become a Christian today, you get the spirit of God living in you. That's a fulfillment of the new covenant 
covenant. But he made it to the nation of Israel, verse 35, and then God says to the Jews who he made the new covenant with, the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light at night, who, who stirs up the sea so that it, its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order of the sun, moon, and stars in the sea ever departs or ever stops from before me as God declares the Lord, then the offspring also I will, Israel will cease to be from being a nation before me forever. And then he goes on. Basically what he's saying is, I'm making a covenant and a promise to Israel forever, and it's as good as long as the sun, moon, and stars stay intact. And his point is, because of the Noahic covenant, they will stay there until the end of the age. God is faithful to his word, to his promises, and that includes the nation of Israel. And as Gentiles, those of us who are, we have the same God, the same faithful God. So we are thankful for this great truth and reminder from Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Father in prayer and ask him to bless our study, to stir up our minds, to keep teaching us with his Holy Spirit. Father, we do thank you for this day and the opportunity to gather with your people, to worship you, and to be exposed to the truth of your word. We thank you that the Holy Spirit promises to be our teacher. Help us meditate on these truths and apply them to our lives in a way that pleases you. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.